Hello, everyone, and happy Easter. Uh, this is Curtis, and for those of you who don't know me, I am currently serving as the pastor of Hillside Bible Chapel in Port Lyons, Alaska. Port Lyons is a remote Alaskan village, which simply means that we are not connected to the road system. The only way in or out is by boat or by plane. And uh, we're going through some of the same struggles and same concerns that everyone is with the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, for us, it's a little bit different, though. Some of the things that most of the United States is struggling with and struggling through are things that we deal with on a daily basis. Um, for example, there are no grocery stores here. We have always done our shopping by mail order and uh, by phone and things like that. Uh, ordering from Amazon and instead of two-day shipping, sometimes it's two weeks, but it gets here nonetheless almost always on an airplane. So we're, we're used to some of these things. And we're kind of nat naturally isolated. So maybe, maybe we're not experiencing some of the same sort of daily worries and anxieties that, that many of you are. But certainly know that we're praying for you and that, uh, that we, we share a, a concern for what's going on in our world. And um, so that's where our circumstances find us this Easter much like many of your churches, we are not meeting in person. So this morning what we did um, is we kind of had a drive-in church service, which I just read is a little bit controversial. It's being prevented in some places, and in some places it's okay. But we don't have residential internet in Port Lyons. Almost no one in town, almost no one in our village has internet at home. So trying to live stream a service or doing something like that would be quite a challenge. Uh, so fortunately this morning, the weather was not too terrible. It was a bit cold and a little bit rainy, but I was the only one outside. So I suffered through and my glasses got wet and my hands got cold, but my heart was warmed to see um, somewhere around probably 30 people attended our little service at the ferry dock. I'll try to put a picture up somehow, or you can maybe check out my Facebook in a few days and a few days and see what that looks like. But because I was out at the ferry dock outside in the rain, I did not record my sermon as I normally do. So I just want to take the time now to um, read to you the sermon I wrote this morning. So I hope it challenges you where you're comfortable. I hope it comforts you where you are distressed. And that's always my prayer. And so here it goes. Easter has become a very gentle celebration. I don't know if this has always been so, but it has been during my lifetime. Girls buy new dresses and gentle pastel colors. I've seen pastors even don a white suit with a pastel tie. I'm not built physically or mentally for a white suit. Maybe next year. Many children receive cute baskets filled with fake grass, plush bunnies, and enough candy to replenish the supply since it's been almost two months since Valentine's Day. For some reason, 
Easter, like Christmas, is a safe time to go to church for those who don't usually go to church. For those who do go to church, it's a lot easier to invite someone to come to your church on Easter than it is on other Sundays. It might seem too confrontational to invite your co-workers to church on a random Sunday in the middle of September, for example, but for Easter Sunday, it seems safe, gentle, much less confrontational. Easter is also a very crafty time of year. Eschewing the separation between church and state, elementary students everywhere, if they were in school, would be coloring such divisive and distinctly Christian symbols like eggs, bunnies, and chicks. My wife Amber made resurrection rolls yesterday. From what I observed, you make a croissant dough, wrap pieces of it around large marshmallows, and bake it. As the bread bakes, the marshmallow disappears, leaving a hollow, sweet roll. And just like that empty tomb 2,000 years ago, you cover it with cinnamon and sugar for a delicious treat. And that's what Easter is. It's a safe, harmless, cute, soft, plush, and crafty time of year. The safe holiday where we have created an empty tomb with a marshmallow and coated it with cinnamon and sugar just in case the marshmallow didn't make it sweet enough to consume. This is a disembodied Easter, where it's acceptable to talk about gentle but vague notions of hope, life, and rebirth. Millions of Christians around the world are experiencing a disembodied church right now. The ongoing pandemic means that for a time we cannot be physically present with one another. One attempt to overcome this temporary separation is to have virtual church. A face on a screen preaches and we listen, voices from the speakers and our devices sing and we sing along or maybe just listen. Hugs and handshakes are replaced by waving hand emojis. Bread and wine are replaced by chips and juice or by whatever happens to be left in the pantry. And I don't mean to criticize this attempt. We would be doing it if we could, I'm sure. And I'm sure we would be encouraged by it. But like a disembodied Easter, a disembodied fellowship has problems. It makes no demands on me. I can listen to or watch the service whenever it's convenient for me. If I don't like the songs, I can just skip them. If I only like the songs, I don't have to stay around for the rest, and no one will notice that I have slipped away before the sermon. If I don't like or don't agree with the sermon, I can find another one from a better preacher with a bigger platform who doesn't read from a manuscript every Sunday. Disembodied church means that I get to pick and choose that I get to set the agenda. And while this disembodied church experience is necessary and even helpful for a time, don't you long for the day when we can meet again, when we can exchange hugs and handshakes and share a meal together? Or will we become so accustomed to picking and choosing and setting our own agendas for Sunday morning or Thursday afternoon or whatever, whenever. I'm here to tell you that the raising of Jesus' body from the dead makes all the difference in the world. Listen to the words of Tom Wright from his book, Surprised by Hope. 
Bodily resurrection is not just an odd bit of Christian hope. It is the element that gives shape and meaning to the rest of the story we tell about God's ultimate purposes. If we squeeze it to the margins, as many have done by implication, or indeed if we leave it out altogether, as some have done quite explicitly, we don't just lose an extra feature, like buying a car that happens not to have electrically operated mirrors. We lose the central engine, which drives it and gives every other component its reason for working. What I want to tell you this morning is that Easter is about as far from harmless as anything could possibly be. What I want to tell you this morning is that the empty tomb was never meant to be sprinkled with sugar to make it taste better. What I want to tell you this morning is that a disembodied Easter is no Easter at all. And I want to tell you these things by telling you the story of one man who came to realize that the tomb was empty, not because the marshmallow melted away, but because the very body of the innocent man locked inside was raised from the dead. This brings us back to our study in Acts. Listen to chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing out threats to murder the Lord's disciples, went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, either men or women, he could bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he was going along, approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? So he said, Who are you, Lord? He replied, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But stand up and enter the city, and you will be told what you must do. Now the men who were traveling with him stood there speechless, because they heard the voice but saw no one. So Saul got up from the ground, but although his eyes were open, he could see nothing. Leading him by the hand, his companions brought him into Damascus, For three days he could not see, and he neither ate nor drank anything. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he replied, Here I am, Lord. Then the Lord told him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and at Judas' house look for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying, and he has seen him in a vision, A man named Ananias come in and place his hands on him so that he might see again. But Ananias replied, Lord, I have heard from many people about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to imprison all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, because this man is my chosen instrument to carry carry my name before Gentiles and kings and the people of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, placed his hands on Saul, and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came here, has sent me so that you you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, his strength returned. Some of you may be familiar with this story. Saul is on his way to arrest followers of Jesus in Damascus, about a week's journey from Jerusalem. 
He has the permission he needs from the leadership of Israel to arrest and to return followers of the way, those who call upon the name of Jesus, back to Jerusalem. Remember Saul's presence at Stephen's execution. He watched over the cloaks of the men who were throwing stones to kill Stephen. Luke tells us that Saul completely agreed with the death sentence. This scenario begs us to ask a question. What's the big deal? Why the zeal against the church? Disagree with them, hate them, maybe even spread lies and rumors, but why the violence? I'm sure there are several good answers, but something stands out to me, especially in light of what Paul wrote in some of his other letters. Even if Saul doesn't agree with the religion of the followers of Jesus, can't they just get along? And I'm sorry here, I keep uh, maybe exchanging the words Saul and Paul. Um, Saul is Saul until he uh, is commissioned to take the gospel to the Gentiles, at which time he becomes Paul. So I I'm using both words. If I'm referring to a letter he's written, one of his epistles, I'll probably say Paul. Uh, otherwise, I will we'll probably say Saul, or I might just mix it up altogether. But it's the same person. But the question is, can't he just ignore it? Can't he just let his kids have an Easter basket, bring his family to church once a year? Can't he just use it as an opportunity for a good family photo with everyone sporting their pink and yellow and lavender? Not quite. Saul, even in his initial rejection of Jesus, understands that the status of Jesus after his death makes all the difference. Saul understands that it makes all the difference whether the empty tomb was created by a melting marshmallow or by a Messiah raised from death to life. Saul understood whom Jesus claimed to be. Saul also knew how Jesus died, and those two realities were irreconcilable. He claimed to be the Messiah, sent by God, commissioned by God's authority, yet teaching and healing and working as often as though This authority were something that was internal to him rather than external. Jesus claimed to have the authority to forgive sins, and he kept saying things about how seeing him is like seeing the Father. Saul knew that the Messiah would come to lift the curse. Yet Jesus died by hanging on a cross, meaning that he was cursed. Paul makes this connection in Galatians 3.13 where he alludes to Deuteronomy 21-23, that cursed is a man who hangs on a tree. Paul makes this connection between the cross and hanging on a tree and and the curse that that entailed. Jesus died by hanging on a tree, meaning that he was cursed. The Messiah would come to liberate Israel from her corrupt leadership and from her pagan oppressors. Yet Jesus died at the hand of these oppressors, as well as as the as at the hands of Israel's religious elite. 
And if the followers of Jesus are worshiping and proclaiming the name of the one who died at the hands of humans, and the one who died not an honorable death, but a death of dishonor, of shame, as a man under a curse, then this sect, this offshoot of Judaism, must be destroyed. I don't know what Saul thought about the empty tomb before his encounter with the risen Jesus. Some during his days suggested that maybe the body was stolen. I'm not sure resurrection even crossed his mind. As a Pharisee, Saul would have believed in resurrection, but in one that would occur at the end of all things, when everyone would be raised. The claim by those who called on the name of Jesus that Jesus was raised, compared to the reality that no one else had been raised, told Saul that the claim was false. And not just false, but dangerous. We get a strong dose of the danger of a Christianity without a bodily risen Savior in 1 Corinthians 15. Take some time this week to read the chapter carefully. Paul makes statements like this, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is futile and your faith is empty. Also, we are found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified against God that he raised Christ from the dead. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is useless. You are still in your sins. For if only in this life we have hope in Christ, we should be pitied more than anyone. These are strong statements that require little explanation or interpretation, really. If the tomb was not empty because Jesus' body was raised from death to life by God, then followers of Jesus are a pitiable lot with a useless and empty message and a useless and empty faith. You see, the resurrection cannot just be an idea, an image that instills generic hope and signals the arrival of spring. If Christ is not raised, then the church is not a safe place to come for inspiration once a week or even twice a year. So what changed Saul's mind? What redirected his zeal? Let's take a look. Verse 3 of chapter 9 tells us that along the road to Damascus, a light from heaven flashed around him, causing him to fall to the ground. Then he heard a voice. Now it's important to understand that this wasn't a dream or a hallucination. Even his companions, were told, heard the voice. The voice from heaven said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul replies, Who are you, Lord? Jesus replies, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Jesus then instructs Saul to enter Damascus, which requires the help of his companions, because this flash of light from heaven has blinded him. Now, I have to admit, in some ways, Saul's conversion is disappointing. I grew up, and most of my early religious experience, I would say really into my 20s, was in kind of a stereotypical Southern Baptist kind of culture. 
No one explains to Paul that he's a sinner. No one tells him how to pray the sinner's prayer. There's no altar call. There's no every head bowed, every eye closed. Raise your hand if you want to be saved. Saul doesn't ask Jesus into his heart after trying to confess all the bad things he's ever done. His conversion is all about changing his mind about Jesus from marshmallow to Messiah. Hearing the voice that identified itself as Jesus, the one whom Saul had been persecuting, told Saul that Jesus really was raised from the dead. Not an inspirational idea or a lovely spring-oriented image, but a physical, bodily rising from death to life. Once Saul understood this, his life was changed forever, as was the history of the church. Saul's story doesn't stop here. The Lord tells Ananias, a follower of Jesus in Damascus, to go to Saul. He reassures Ananias by explaining that Saul has received a vision that he's coming to him. But Ananias is understandably nervous because he knows Saul's reputation. He knows that Saul has the authority to arrest the followers of Jesus. The Lord says to Ananias, Go, because this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before Gentiles and kings and the people of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Ananias' task is to find Saul so that the Lord can show Saul how much he must suffer for his sake. Do you see what has taken place here? The one pursuing followers of Jesus has become the one pursued by Jesus. The one with authority to inflict suffering on those calling upon the name of Jesus has become the one who will endure suffering for the sake of the name of Jesus. So what is the point of all of this? Why should it matter to us that Saul came to believe that Jesus' body was raised from the dead, that the tomb was empty, not because the marshmallow melted, but because the Messiah was raised? I believe that what Saul realized And what we must realize and continually be reminded of is that the resurrection of Jesus' body means that we do not get to pick and choose. We do not get to determine the agenda of our lives or the agenda of our churches. You see, if Jesus' resurrection is just an inspiring image that initiates the arrival of spring, then we can take what we like from the story We can take the sweet bread and the cinnamon and the sugar and leave the bitter parts for someone else. Things like sin and suffering, sacrifice and shame. But if he is Messiah raised from the dead, then he determines the agenda. Then following him because he has pursued you means that you can expect to suffer for the sake of his name. It means that the church isn't just a safe place to make you better citizens, better parents, or to help keep your children under a little bit of control. The risen body of Jesus means that the church is the body 
of those who are not yet raised, but held together by the one who is. You see, our bodies too will be raised. Creation itself will be redeemed and restored. But until then, we suffer. But we suffer as those whose forerunner. We suffer as those whose trailblazer, as those whose pioneer, as those who have an author and perfecter of their faith who has suffered before us. We suffer as those with hope, not the hope of a penny tossed in a fountain, not the hope of praying hand emojis, but the hope of pierced hands, now raised and ruling from the right hand of his Father. It is my prayer that this Easter, as we are surrounded by reminders, everything from politicians to pathogens, that we live in a fallen, a fallen world. It's my prayer that you will encounter and embrace Jesus, the Messiah raised from death to life, and that you will find in him a person so powerful and passionate in his pursuit of his people, even of you, that letting go of your agenda, letting go of your picking and choosing from the Easter story would fill you with a hope that does not disappoint. Amen.